Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, You know, I think if you listen to the show regularly, which I know many of you out there do, we've spent so much time talking about the runoff election, uh, talking about uh, day-to-day political headlines, and clearly, uh, now that the election is over, we're going to move to the next stage of our political dialogues in this state and in the country as well. The legislature starts in just a matter of weeks, and there'll be a lot of news coming out of what they plan to do. Um, the Fulton County Special Grand Jury continues to investigate uh, possible criminal uh, offenses uh, around the efforts to overturn the 2020 Georgia presidential election. Um, as uh, uh, many of you know, um, they continue to hear from some witnesses, but they say they're about to wrap things up. Michael Flynn finally testified yesterday. Um, And the January 6th committee is uh, uh, going to announce shortly, we believe, whether they want to recommend criminal charges uh, be brought because of the January 6th insurrection against any of the people that they've interviewed. So all that and much more is ahead of us. But today, today, we're going to look at two important cases that the United States Supreme Court took up this week that got a lot of headlines. Um, Different people have different interpretations as to how far-reaching these two cases are, one having to do with whether a businesswoman in Colorado has the right to refuse to uh, uh, provide her services to gay and lesbian couples who want to uh, to use her to create websites as they plan their weddings. Uh, The other having to do with whether the legislature is the dominant force in determining federal election matters within a state or whether a state Supreme Court, for instance, has the power to uh, weigh in on what the legislature is to do. We're going to talk about that and all more um, and a lot more. But let me introduce the panel and we'll get going right away. It's Friday, which means my partner is Jim Galloway, the former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Jim, I am really glad we have some very smart uh you know, law professors on the show today because I only know so much about how these things work. Well, well, truly, by, by the end of this hour, I think I'm going to be ready to take the state bar exam. <laughs> well, I'm awfully glad you're here with me uh, today. We're joined by Fred Smith, professor, professor of law at Emory University. Uh, Fred, we're always glad to have you on the show Uh you clerked for uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and she played a big role in the case, particularly on Monday. How have you been? Wonderful. And yes, it's been a, a big week at the court and a, a bigger week in Georgia, if I can say. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad you are. Uh, we're also joined again by Anthony Michael Christ, who teaches law, constitutional law at Georgia State University. Anthony, thank you for being back with us today. Glad to be here. And we're very happy to be joined by Lori Ringan, professor of law, constitutional law, one of your areas of expertise at the University of Georgia. 
Um, and Lori, we should point out that one of your books is, I think I've got the title right, The Supreme Court of the United States Constitution uh, Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change. It strikes me that uh, that's going to play into what we talk about today, but thank you for being here. I think we're, uh, are you muted, Lori? Because we're not hearing you right now. Okay, we'll, we'll, uh, Natalie will get I'm you back. Uh, there, there you are. There you are. Now we have you. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you. Um, let's start, Jim, with uh, a headline that uh, uh, we saw pop up yesterday. The 11th Circuit Court, uh, Federal Court of Appeals here in Atlanta yesterday finalized their ruling that uh, eliminates the special master who was assigned by a federal judge in South Florida, Aileen Cannon, to oversee the way in which the Justice Department looked through documents seized in the Mar-a-Lago uh, uh, search. And uh, the, the court, the appeals court was very, very tough in saying that Aileen Cannon had overstepped her bounds by a wide margin in, in, a, in making that ruling that a special master had to be assigned. But one of the reasons I want to talk about it, at least briefly, is we know the 11th Circuit is one of the more conservative federal appeals courts in the country. Several uh, justices, j- judges on that court were uh, uh, nominated and confirmed while Trump was president. And yet they've ruled now on a number of occasions against Donald Trump. Right. And, 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 and uh, the Trump, uh, Trump campaign organization or whatever it is, uh, they have decided not to appeal it. Uh, uh, this, this, it, it was a very strange situation where, where, where uh, Judge Cannon decided that, that the judiciary had the right to uh, look over the shoulder of the Justice Department as it conducted its investigation uh, the the eleventh circuit, as you said, the the eleventh circuit just completely vacated that. I, I I was most impressed by by the kind of the forthrightness uh, with which they they they, uh, they 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 took down Cannon's uh, assertion that there was some sort of special right that a former president has. Uh, uh, that 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 was that was very strong language. Um, Fred, uh, I think that's a really important point. Aileen Cannon, the uh, uh, judge in Florida who assigned the special master, uh, was a Trump appointee. And at the time she did it, there was a great deal of outrage in the legal community about her action before the Justice Department had even looked at bringing charges. Um, They were just starting to sift through the documents, Fred. Sure. And I think that the 11th Circuit uh, made clear how unusual uh, those particular sets of moves were. Uh, so a lot of people were pointing out how unusual they were. Um, but yeah, in terms of the 11th Circuit, it's a conservative court, um, but it's not a partisan court. Uh, and there's a distinction, an important distinction. Um, and, uh, and sometimes those get conflated. Um, and so uh, it is it is a wonderful and welcome moment that we can, that we can, uh, that we can all... Um, look to um, because we want the judiciary, uh, even if they're conservative or liberal, we don't want them to ever be partisan. Lori? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think even though um, we we sometimes 
talk publicly about the Supreme Court um, in particular as being a political actor and um, how their their uh, presumed political preferences influence their decision. I think in, in the course of talking about that, sometimes it gets easy to forget that legal reasoning looks different than political reasoning, and sometimes law is clear. And I think what we saw from the 11th Circuit here was a, a honest, good faith application of a legal standard, and, and courts do that too, in addition to all the things that we sometimes criticize them for. Anthony, you're welcome to uh, add to that, but, but I'm also interested because one of the areas of constitutional law that you are most interested in has to do with how the law sees uh, gay and lesbian issues, which is going to become important in our conversation in just a couple minutes. But we should point out that yesterday uh, the uh, U.S. House passed the uh, bill which enshrines the right of same-sex marriage uh, into federal law. It's on its way to uh, President Biden's desk for uh, uh, his signature. And um, it was an important case brought about to some extent by the fact that when the court overturned Roe, Justice Thomas said that the same standards they used to overturn Roe, maybe they ought to be looking at overturning uh, same-sex marriage, uh, the right to uh, uh, contraception, and all sorts of other protections of, of, under the privacy uh, statutes of the Constitution. So I think the, uh, the Congress's action was important, yes? Oh, I, I think absolutely. I mean, it's I think just as a political matter, it's, it's amazing that not only do we have a, uh, a, a unanimous uh, vote amongst Democrats and liberals, but also a lot of Republicans and conservatives joining in to protect same-sex marriage on the federal level and repeal the Defense of Marriage Act, which had banned federal recognition of marriages since 1996, uh, you know, a byproduct of, of, of Bill, uh, Bill Barr down here in Georgia. So um, I, I do think it's kind of a tremendous step forward, at least in terms of speaking to where we are on the issue, and it is certainly a pushback against Justice Thomas's call to revisit some of those cases. All right. Um, thank you all for uh, talking about those two headlines that have been in the news over the last 24 hours or so. Let's talk about these two cases that the uh, Supreme Court heard this week. Um, the first one they heard uh, at the beginning of the week, I think on Monday, and, and I'm just going to lay out the very basic uh, points of that case and then ask you all to talk about it in depth. It concerns a Colorado businesswoman named Lori Smith. She wants to expand her business to create websites that would uh, help people who are planning a wedding honor their wedding in, in some way or another. She is devoutly religious. She does not believe that it would be appropriate for her, or it's more important, a violation of her religious beliefs, to do wedding sites for same-sex couple. That puts her uh, uh, in a difficult position in Colorado because Colorado has a statute which uh, says you cannot discriminate. If you offer your business services, you have to offer to everyone. And so Lori Smith has worked her way up to the Supreme Court arguing that, in fact, her First Amendment rights to free speech should be honored. She should not have to um, offer that service to same-sex couples. Now, Fred, one of the things I find really interesting about this case is there's no inciting incident. 
she did not, in fact, refuse a same-sex couple, the, the uh, w wedding website. She is turning to them before she launches this business, which um, is interesting because what it ended up doing was creating all sorts of hypothetical <laughs> discussions among the justices that we'll talk about more in a minute. But Fred, let's just start with this. Have I got the uh, t uh, circumstances of this pretty right? Yes. <clears throat> and for the reason you just said, um, some of the questions centered around whether or not the case was uh, ripe just yet, uh, whether or not it should go back down for more actual development. I don't think that's what's going to happen, uh, but that at least was in the room during um, during the discussion. Um, because uh, to, what did end up happening was that the justices on both sides uh, found themselves asking very difficult and important hypotheticals. Um, and that's what the court will often do, except that it's nice to have something to turn back to um, in terms of what's literally in front of uh, the court. Uh, and here, sometimes that felt a little slippery. Anthony, uh, here's one of the, the interesting aspects of this case, and you'll certainly t expand on what I'm saying. The Lori Smith's attorney argued that she would be more than happy to provide web services to anyone, including LGBTQ customers who came to see her. She's not discriminating against them. She just simply says that she does not want to offer them these wedding websites because it's a violation of her religious beliefs, and they claim it's a free speech issue. So there's a difference between the message that she sends and her saying she will always be glad to allow to bring up, you know, to do business with anyone who comes in her door. Yes. Yeah. So I, I think part of this is disingenuous. But but I do want to say from the onset, I, I think that the real issue here is that this is a matter of how we treat people in the public square and how we define and protect equal citizenship in public spaces. And that's really what's at stake here. And what highlights that out or that aspect of, of things to me um, is the fact that, you know, I have to ask the, the, another fundamental question, which is this. Whose speech is it? Is, is it really Lori Smith's speech that's at issue here? Or is it the speech of her customers, her clients, right? Um, you know, she puts up on you know, her website, or she would put up on her website, the time, the place, the story, that how they met, you know, for, for, same for, for opposite-sex couples. That's not her story. That's not her message. It's, it's just conveying what her clients want in the same way, right, that a florist would, would comply with the, the request of, of, a, of, of a couple or, you know, somebody wants to design a wedding cake in a certain way. Um, and so I think that's a real key question here is, right, whose speech is it? And the other question I think is important um, is that, yes, she has this different view about marriage, but, um, right, why you know, if she's able or willing to provide, right, layout A and B uh, for, for opposite-sex couples, then why, why can't she be compelled to provide that same layout to, to same-sex couples? And if there's a difference there, the only difference is their sexual orientation, right, a protected trait that we recognize under law. So I, I, you know, I, I see why she's trying to make that claim and why she's trying to split those hairs in that way. But I personally find it disingenuous, and it's really just a way to subordinate same-sex couples to a different status in, in the public square than opposite-sex couples. Uh, Laurie, if I could add one element to this and then get you to uh, uh, add your thoughts. 
The Solicitor General of Colorado, Eric Olson, argued this case for the state, saying it, that she is violating, if she goes forward with this, the public accommodation law, which requires that businesses in the state that serve the public have to serve everyone. And he made a hypothetical. He said, uh, a store that sells only Jewish-themed items uh, is perfectly, it's legal for them to do that, but they can't refuse to sell those items to other customers, say a Muslim or a Christian. He warned that the exemption that Laurie Smith is seeking is sweeping, it would apply not only to sincere religious beliefs like Smith's, but also to all kinds of racist, sexist, and bigoted claims. He's got a very broad um, notion of how this uh, the court could uh, impact all of us in its ruling. Uh, give us your thoughts on that. So I think to answer that, you really have to unpack what the claim is here and why it is we're talking about speech instead of the free exercise of religion. Because, of course, the First Amendment protects both the freedom of speech and the free exercise of religion. And this claim is based in the speech provision, not the religion provision. There are reasons for that. Doctrinally, for decades, the court has made it hard to bring free exercise challenges against laws that are generally applicable, that aren't targeted at your religious practice, but just happen to interfere with it. So there's reasons that she's not bringing a free exercise claim. Um, but because it's a speech claim, that is what really makes um, acute the potential scope of her argument. Because you can, you can kind of bookend two types of things that are, are pro probably fairly broadly accepted. One is that states get to have public accommodations laws that require businesses to take their customers as they find them. You, those laws are very old. They go all the way back to um, British common law. This notion that if you want to open yourself up for business in the public sphere, you don't get to pick and choose and discriminate against your customers. Um, that is generally accepted as a, as a kind of basic principle. Um, and then on the other hand, we don't allow the First Amendment speech protections protect people against being compelled to say things they don't want to say. So a kind of an example of that is if you're an artist working on commission and you, you, you are open to the public, generally speaking, someone can't come in and say, you have to paint a swastika for me. So, so we have these two kind of principles. And for her speech claim to be viable, what she has to be saying, what she has to demonstrate, is that her serving these customers is an expressive act. And that's why these claims come up in things like web design. They come up, like the case from several years ago, um, about bakers baking wedding cakes that arguably have expressive messages mm -hmm. on them. Because the, the first thing they have to determine here is that it's a speech act. Um, and the most sweet, the thing that would make this claim very sweeping is if the court said the mere act of serving someone whose um, uh, marriage you disagree with, the mere fact that you served them is it self-expression, um, that would make this a very, very broad claim. On the other hand, if the court narrowed it and said she's actually creating art here, there's an expressive element to web design, that would keep the, the constitutional speech came, claim a bit more cabined. Jim? Let me ask, ask the panel here. I put something in, in, in a very Southern uh, cast. Uh, okay, the, 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 the Lori Smith case, we're, we're talking about an individual web designer. Uh, 
uh, which, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things might not impact much. But if, if Lori Smith has a friend with similar uh, beliefs and another friend with similar beliefs and another friend with similar beliefs, it, it, society is made up of individuals. Now, how does how does the how 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 does the law address that? Because this is exactly what we went through with 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 Jim Crow, uh, that 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 you had uh, you had a hotel owner who wouldn't serve uh, African Americans, and another one, and another one, and another one, and another one. Uh, what's to keep that from happening again here, Anthony? Well, yeah. So I, I think part of the reason why we have public accommodations laws uh, is because. We want to keep the, the channels of commerce free and open to all. And right, we don't want a situation where people can't you know, access basic services um, because a, a group of people have formed a monopoly. And this, is, this may not be a problem in, say, Atlanta, but if I'm somewhere south of Macon and there's only two people who are nearby and provide a particular service, right, um, I might be completely out of luck. And, and so... That's part of that's part of the rationale for why we've always had public accommodations law, um, and and but and I also would note that this idea that public accommodations laws somehow infringe on people's expressive abilities to associate with people with whom they want to associate and, and express uh, feelings about certain things has a, a pretty bad history in the 1960s, where people said I, I oppose Title II, the Civil Rights Act, and, and I won't provide services to people because I have a right to associate, right? I mean, you can look at Lester Maddox down the street, you know, in Atlanta making these kinds of claims. And, and so these claims are not necessarily entirely new. They, they do have a pretty pernicious past. Fred, your former justice, Sonia Sotomayor, made a point about just what Jim is talking about as she asked questions. Let's listen to cut number two, Natalie, and what she said. How about people who don't believe in interracial marriage? Or about people who don't believe that disabled people should get married? Fred? Absolutely right. So what you're seeing is this clash of two uh, fundamentally important American values um, and the court uh, trying to work out the right balance, right? So on the one hand uh, is um, a speech uh, as Professor Ringham put it so uh, put it so well, uh, you can think of the hypotheticals in terms of the government forcing someone to say something that they don't want to say and that they don't believe in. Um, and uh, on the other hand, uh, we all do remember um, in our collective American memory what it looked like before there were laws that said that one couldn't discriminate on the basis of race, on the basis of sex, on the basis of religion on the basis of sexual orientation uh, more recently uh, in a number of states. Um, and, uh, and people remember what it looked like uh, because we've all seen the visuals of whites only signs. Um, and so uh, there's this kind of this visual that I think naturally emerges in one's minds about what would it look like to live in that world again and for that to be legal again, for there to be whites only signs on stores uh, and at, at barbecue restaurants and, uh, and, and straight only signs. Um, uh, on, on storefronts uh, in, in towns across America. And that's a chilling thought, too. Both of those are very chilling thoughts. Uh, and so how does one work out that balance? Um, what the court seems poised to do, uh, as, as Professor Ringham noted, um, is to really 
maybe focus on this distinction between um, services that require someone to say something specific um, and services that don't. Um, and so a barbecue restaurant or Heart of Atlanta Motel, which was a famous case in the 1960s where they were refusing service to black folks, um, that wouldn't fall within that particular uh, ruling. Um, and then the question then becomes, uh, what is her website more like? Like, is it kind of really plug and play? Like, you know, you just say, this is, I just want you to say the date. I just want you to say where it is, et cetera. Or um, is, are there more creative elements to it? Um, and, uh, and that, you know, and that in some ways, because the factual record is so sparse, uh, it's not exactly clear uh, uh, what, what exactly um, she thinks that she would be asked to do. Um, but but that's, those are the sorts of questions that um, they're going to have to work out in the ruling. Lori? I would just add um, to what uh, uh, Professor Smith just offered us here that, that there is actually a, a second step to the test. So, so even if the court were to decide that activities like this are expressive and are protected um, by the First Amendment, freedom of expression provisions, um, there, there, there is a, a, a backstop um, that would allow the government, a state to nonetheless um, uh, enforce its public accommodations law if that government interest is really important, compelling in the language of the law. And, and one thing that, that I, I think I heard, I might have heard a little inkling of in the oral argument, I think Justice Alito might be trying to move toward, let's take a broad definition of speech and then slice these different types of discrimination on the compelling state interest front. Um, I don't think he's going to get many ju justices to go along with that um, because it it's, puts the court in a position that it may not want to be in of issuing decisions about which types of discrimination are and are not more important um, to people's lives. But I, I, I think we might see something like that in the form of a concurring opinion. So, uh, Jim, most of the reporters who covered the uh, arguments on Monday came away feeling that the court, uh, a majority of the court, the conservative justices were more likely to support Lori Smith, although, as uh, Lori Ringhan just said, we'll see how they slice and dice it. We should point out, Jim, that, you know, if this all sounds familiar to many people out there, it's because in 2018, the Colorado baker Jack Phillips uh, argued a case in the court uh, that he shouldn't have to make wedding cakes for uh, same-sex couples. And in that case, though, Jim, the court really avoided the whole issue by ruling very, very narrowly. They said the Colorado Civil Rights Commission showed a certain antagonism uh, toward Jack Phillips, and they found that based on their harsh treatment of him, uh, they were not going to uh, recognize the, uh, the the Human Rights Commission uh, contention that he was violating the law. So they ducked it. But now, uh, Jim, they're going to have to move forward to some extent. We won't know until next spring how they've decided this. No, and, 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 and you, and, and another question for the panel here is, is, is that, look, in, in, in politics, which we, we dealt, uh, this show dealt, uh, deals in uh, uh, quite a bit, uh, you have the action, then you have the reaction. Uh, we had Obergefell. Is this the reaction to that? Is this is this the counter revolution to Obergefell? Jim Galloway, Jim Galloway, you so often set us up 
uh, for this next segment of our show. You've done it again today by offering us a great tease into segment two, but we have got to get to a break right now. Natalie Mendenhall is saying, you're late, you're late. We'll do that and come back to answer your question and a lot more. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Before I reintroduce the panel, I want to do a quick follow-up to yesterday's show. If you were listening uh, to the show, you heard our panel in real time trying to figure out whether or not the state legislature has to uh, approve any change in Georgia's uh, presidential primary for 2024. The Democratic National Committee wants Georgia to be, be near the top of the heap. And we went back and forth over whether that's something the Secretary of State can do, whether the legislature has to approve it. Well, Mary Margaret Oliver, being who she is, went back from the show and talked to the Legislative Council and asked that question. And here's the answer. It's really confusing. <laughs> she sent two emails to us saying, we're not quite sure just how this is going to work. So we'll stay on top of it. But I did want to follow up uh, with the conversation we had about that yesterday. All right, let's get back to the show. Lori Ringhand, professor of law at University of Georgia, is here. Anthony Michael Kreis, who's a professor of law at Georgia State, and Fred Smith, professor of law at Emory University. And of course, my good friend, Jim Galloway, is here as well. So Fred, let's pick up on the question that Jim asked before the break, which is, to some extent, um, is the court now uh, responding to the fact that they were never, this conservative court may have some questions about Oberfell, and, and so now they're looking for ways to sort of compensate for that. Is that a fair way of asking your question, Jim? I think so, yeah. Yeah, Fred? I, mean, I, think, I think there certainly were echoes of dissent. Uh, from Obergefell in the room the other day in the oral argument. And I think there also uh, were aspects of another case that were also in the room, and that's a case called Bostock uh, from here from Georgia, um, which ruled that uh, in employment, discrimination on the basis of sex includes discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And there's this moment in the majority opinion where Justice Gorsuch notes uh, now, to be clear, we're not saying anything about religious exemptions. And so even though this case wasn't exactly about religion, uh, a, lo a lot of the hypotheticals ended up uh, going in that direction um, because that, that, that's an important form of speech, even if one takes the, the speech uh, the religion clause out of the discussion. Um, and uh, so what I mean by, oops, sorry. What, what I mean by the dissent uh, from uh, Obergefell uh, is that Justice Alito there in particular said that one of his concerns about the majority concluding uh, that the right to marry included same-sex couples um, was that uh, it would, in our culture, uh, create a situation in which people who oppose same-sex marriage uh, would be viewed as bigoted. Uh, in the same way that if someone were to openly say that they oppose interracial marriage, that they would be viewed that way. And he was afraid that the court had kind of uh, contributed to that broader cultural um, story. And so I think this is a way of kind of resting some of that back. 
All right. Uh, as we move towards the conclusion of this part of our conversation, uh, Lori Ringhand, I, I want to play, because I played Sonia Sotomayor a couple minutes ago, let me play uh, a comment from Justice um, Gorsuch about this case. And then when we come out of it, let's talk very briefly about how extensively this law could change a lot of our thoughts about the rights of same-sex uh, uh, couples or whether they are likely the court to act in a relatively narrow way about it. Let's listen to Justice Gorsuch and then continue our conversation. This individual will provide all manner of websites, just not one that celebrates, requires her to write something, words on a page, that celebrate a particular thing that she finds offends her religious beliefs. So uh, it, there he goes. He suggests that it's perfectly uh, that she should be able, on the basis of her religious uh, beliefs, to cite uh, uh, her First Amendment freedom to not have to service uh, same-sex couples. Yeah, I think unlike in the Masterpiece Bake Shop case that, that uh, we mentioned a bit ago, the court can't duck this. It is simply going to have to decide in this case um, how sweepingly it wants to define the speech act protected by the First Amendment in the face of public accommodations laws. Um, and, and I don't think we know the answer to that question. Listening to the Gorsuch clip, listening to the oral argument, I, I think most uh, Supreme Court followers would uh, assume that they are going to rule in favor of Lori Smith. Um, but the scope of that ruling, I think, remains very much up in the air. All right. Um, Anthony, if, if it's OK with you, what I'd like to do is move on to the other case the court heard uh, this week. It was a case. And again, I'll set it up uh, as briefly as I can. Um, the North Carolina legislature, which was controlled by Republicans, created a congressional map that uh, favored Republicans. I think it, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I think there were very few Democrats in the map. Jim, do you know 10, 10, Demo 10 Republican districts, only four uh, Democratic, and that does not reflect the, the uh, political population of the state. So the North Carolina State Supreme Court said, no, this map is illegal, and they, um, uh, they drew their own map, which was more equitable in its distribution. Um, the question that the United States Supreme Court heard this week was whether or not a state Supreme Court, in this case, the North Carolina State Supreme Court, has the right to overturn the ruling of a legislative body or whether the United States Constitution makes it clear that it is legislatures, not courts, which have the final say in matters of federal elections. Have I got that correct? Yeah. So the way I think it's important to start with the constitutional text and the provisions that are at issue here. Um, so in Article One, the United States federal constitution says that legislatures should set the time, place, and manner of <clears throat> elections. And in Article Two, there's a clause called the Electors Clause that says that legislatures will direct how uh, electors for the Electoral College are uh, sent to, to cast their ballots. Um, and in 2000, in Bush versus Gore, right, there's a, there was a question about whether a state court mandated uh, recount, which was not necessarily entirely um, permitted by state law, at least not clearly. Um, there was a question of whether the state courts had stepped or overstepped their bounds there. 
and in a concurring opinion uh, authored by then Chief Justice Rehnquist, right? So it was a concurring opinion. It didn't have any controlling authority. Suggested that there was this independent state legislature theory that uh, that state courts really should not be allowed to go out of their way to to either impose state constitutional requirements on election state election law uh, for for federal elections, um, or you know th- there should be some kind of limiting principle, and and so I think that you know that's kind of how where we're at, but historically speaking, in terms of Supreme Court precedent. The Supreme Court has, has fairly often recognized, or at least a couple of times, has recognized that state legislatures aren't acting unconstrained from state constitutions or other um, right limits on how they craft election law. So there was a 1932 case called Smiley where the Supreme Court said that, yes, the Minnesota governor could veto um, a, a congressional map. In 2015, we had another case out of Arizona, which the Supreme Court said, yes, uh, you can have an independent redistricting commission that operated outside of the state legislature. And then we had a case in 2019 where the Supreme Court uh, rejected this idea that there was a constitutional problem with partisan gerrymandering. And the Supreme Court said, well, we don't have a federal constitutional problem here. But by the way, state Supreme Courts and state courts can apply uh, state constitutional principles to deal with this issue um, on a state-by-state basis. So, right, we, we just have this, I, I think, this, this case that's very, it's not very complex. I think it's pretty straightforward. But at the end of the day, if, if, the, if the, the challengers to this map get their way, uh, we're going to basically relieve state legislatures of their constitutional commitments in a way that we don't do in any other way, right? That, that there are um, there's really important principles here at stake because state constitutions do matter. And so uh, the, the idea that legislatures can kind of have free reign to do whatever they want is really anathema to, to practice. And, um, you know, how we have a republic, uh, Republican form of government in this country and in every state. So, Laurie Ringhand, I, I think Anthony made an important general point, and, and I want to make sure we don't uh, neglect it. What this case is really all about is should a state legislature controlled by one party or the other have free reign in determining things like the redistricting of congressional seats um, and other congressional other matters relating to federal elections free from any challenge by a state court? We've already eliminated an earlier Supreme Court not long ago, eliminated pre-clearance. Uh, of uh, federal election matters. So that's one of the reasons this is of some concern. And just, I want to play a soundbite of Hillary Clinton, who I I will tell you, even before we listen to it, I was a little shocked that she seemed to be adopting the language of her former nemesis, Donald Trump. But here's how she described what she thinks this case is all about. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And they're not making a secret of it. The right-wing controlled Supreme Court may be poised to rule on giving state legislatures, yes, you heard me that correctly, state legislatures the power to overturn presidential elections. Just think, if that happens, the 2024 presidential election could be decided not by the popular vote 
or even by the anachronistic electoral college, but by state legislatures. That's Hillary Clinton, Laurie Ringhand. Um, what, again, we've heard from court observers is they think the court is not particularly inclined to go along with this notion of the independent state legislature. But is Hillary Clinton uh, making an overly dramatic point here? Or it, is there the possibility that a ruling uh, could, in fact, affect how we look at the 2024 elect presidential election? I think a ruling definitely could uh, impact the 2024 election, again, depending on its sweep. Um, and to, to, to speak to um, Secretary Clinton's uh, point or comment there, um, I think she's not wrong that Donald Trump's efforts to kind of manipulate state legislatures and pressure state legislatures um, to change the outcome of the 2020 election um, had an impact on why this has risen to the the um, level of attention that it has and, and, and ended up in the Supreme Court case. Um, I think the pandemic also played a role in why this theory um, has gotten some legs here because there were uh, states were scrambling to try to figure out how to help people ensure, ensure that people could vote in spring of 2020. And there, there were a lot of decisions being made by a lot of different bodies. So all of those aspects have been, I think, what has pushed this to the forefront of the court's agenda. Um, we'll talk more about that in a moment. But once again, I'm running late to get to our final break of the show. When we come back, Jim Galloway and the rest of the panel will continue our conversation. Uh, Jim Galloway, as we talk a little bit longer uh, about this North Carolina case, which could determine uh, how powerful a state legislature might be compared to a state court in determining uh, federal election uh, matters, uh, why don't you jump in? Uh, yeah, the, 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 the one thing that I would add to this is is the reality of December 2000, uh, 2020, and that uh, we had we had an actual situation in Georgia where you had a state legislators convene a hearing, uh, bring in Rudy Giuliani, all sorts of uh, quote quote unquote experts uh, to to declare uh, uh, the, the the Georgia elections for president only uh, to be flawed. And uh, you had, uh, and and we have it right now. We we have the, the uh, Bert Jones, who's who's uh, who will be sworn in as lieutenant governor. Uh, he, he carried a letter up to Washington, didn't deliver it, but he carried a letter ask, uh, assuring Mike Pence that the Georgia legislature would be uh, would be uh, ready to follow his his lead if he chose to reject Georgia voters. And and and. Uh you have people in state legislators, legislatures who would love to have the power that we're talking about. Yeah, Fred, I'm glad that Jim brought that up because here's my question, and, and I apologize if I'm uh, not in, if, you know, in the right space on this, but we did have an alternate slate of delegates, uh, Trump delegates, in uh, a fake slate of delegates um, uh, compared to the Biden slate of delegates. If for some reason... There had been a state Supreme Court case about which delegation was legally empowered. Um, a states, is it conceivable, depending on how the U.S. Supreme Court rules, that a state, the state Supreme Court, if it had a partisan bent, could in fact anoint one of those slates over the other, even if it violated the will of the voters of the state? Yes, that's right. So the question would be, I think you set it up very well, right? The question would be whether or not 
the state Supreme Court could say that, some, that something was un, unconstitutional under the state constitution in that situation. So if you had the legislature acting in a way where it was violating state law by anointing fake electors, um, then uh, there is a way that the Supreme Court could rule in this case that would take the state Supreme Court out of the story. Um, and there was a lot of, uh, I won't say a lot, there was some degree of disdain almost that I heard for state courts um, at the oral argument, um, especially from Justice Alito, who noted that, uh, that state Supreme Court judges are, uh, are elected. Uh, he uh, pointed to, uh, to different ways in which, uh, to different opinions and said, well, you know, did they rely enough on precedent here, et cetera. He was really kind of second guessing state Supreme Court decisions about their own state constitutions uh, in a way that I had have actually never heard before. Um, that's something that the United States Supreme Court has long, since the 1800s, has stayed out of the way. They've said that when it comes to interpretations of the state constitution and state law, that belongs to state Supreme Courts. And the, the United States Supreme Court won't tend to second-guess that. Um, and and I don't and I think that will remain true after this decision. But going into the argument, uh, people didn't know that until they kind of heard uh, the way that the court looks like it's going to go here. And that, again, won't be uh, something we'll know the answer to until next spring, uh, likely when the court releases all of the opinions of this uh, session. Um, I'd, I'd like to move on for a couple minutes here because there's been so much uh, concern expressed by so many people about the uh, increased what people some see as the politicization of federal courts, especially. And and I mentioned to all of you on the panel today. I I direct I asked you if you'd look at a piece that Jamel Bowie wrote for the New York Times uh, this past week. I, I I think if people don't read him and you have access to the New York Times, you should because I think he's a brilliant. Uh, uh, opinion writer. Uh, Anthony, here's what he wrote that the United States Supreme Court has always been traditionally a court of last resort. They wait until a issue has come up through the court system and they become the last resort. And Bowie wrote about his concern that increasingly it's becoming a court of first resort perhaps because it's feeling its power and believes that, in fact, it has the ability now to essentially uh, override anything that lower courts might do and even goes beyond that. What, what did you make of I'd like to get each of you to weigh in on what you thought of that opinion. Well, I, I, I think we have seen a certain degree to which the court is willing to either bypass the, the traditional appellate process or I think even more corrosive is this, the, the, the so-called shadow docket, where the Supreme Court will make rulings on what is essentially injunctive relief and not on the merits of the case without the full briefing and the full kind of uh, you know, traditional uh, way, you know, way we have litigation come before the Supreme Court. And they make these decisions on the back end and, and attempt to really make law in significant ways, but under the radar. Um, and I think that that's very corrosive to the democratic process. I do think that the Supreme Court feels, at least now, that they have a 63, uh, you know, supermajority of conservatives. They feel incredibly emboldened. I mean, the Dobbs decision and, and the, you know, wading into the abortion 
issue as they did this summer is evidence of that. And, and now, right, we're talking about independent state, independent state legislature doctrine. We're talking about overturning affirmative action, gutting gay rights. I mean, they're, they're really feeling as if they're in a position, um, right, to, to make these big sweeping decisions and push back and stand athwart some of the social change that they were put in place to, to stand in between um, you know, the kind of the old guard and the new guard. So I think they're doing exactly what they were put in place to do. And so, uh, uh, Fred and Lori, let me give you each a chance at this. Fred, uh, is this a matter of conservative ideology or to an extent is, is it in fact the increased politicization of the high court? Well, it's certainly a matter of the court intervening earlier in cases than it has before. And Steve Vladek has done a really good job of demonstrating just how empirically true it is um, that in the past few years, um, the court's intervening earlier and earlier in the life of a case. And in every case we've talked about, we've talked about how narrowly are they going to rule. Um, you know, but lurking in the background, which is behind all of these cases, is the next case and the next case and, um, and, and kind of and these building blocks. Um, and so then the question then becomes, well, how fast do these building blocks go up? Uh, and so when the court is able to intervene at an earlier step, it's able to build um, build the full architecture of what its uh, of what its full goals might be in an area. Um, and that's um, I, I'll leave it for others to decide whether that's a good or a bad thing. Yeah, um, I I think it is Steve Vladek who, who Fred just mentioned. You know, this is a court in a hurry. Um, and the three longest-serving justices on the court um, include Justices Thomas and Alito, who are the court's most conservative members. I think they are not interested in wasting time right now. Um, and I think it, um, it's, it also goes to something Fred said earlier. That there is a certain hubris. There's a, a disdain for other institutions of government that I think is also contributing to this trend to to move fast and break things. Um, Jim Galloway, we're almost out of time, but it, it does strike me that one of the things that may be a very positive sign is how much more attention uh, most many, many people are now paying to the United States Supreme Court. They have become a dominant feature in headlines for some time now. Now, I understand the court has always been important, but I think maybe partly because of social media, uh, partly because of our partisan divide, uh, people are really watching what the court does. Right, they're, 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 the 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 court is really feeling its oats. I, th I think on, on on this particular issue, the one what I'm uh, what really concerns me is is and 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 let's take it back to the top of the show in that eleventh district uh, court of appeals decision on on the uh, on on the special master. Uh, the 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 Supreme Court is undercutting. Uh, by by ignoring by by bringing up uh, cases so fast, they're they're undercutting uh, the the legal process that we've been so used to. All right, Jim Galloway, you get <clears throat> excuse me the last word uh, for today's show. We're completely out of time. Lori Ringhand, Anthony Michael Kreis, Fred Smith, uh, thank you, and Jim. Of course, I'm always happy to have you uh, with me on Fridays. We're back to talking politics. On Monday, among other things, we'll talk about how Kristen Cinema may have just uh, contributed to uh, the feeling that Georgia thought we'd elected the 51st Democratic senator, but not so fast. We'll talk about her decision to uh, separate herself from the Democratic Party, among many other things. As we leave you, I have one quick personal note. 
Uh, you know that my wife Janice and I have a, a very close friend in New York, Kenny Leon, the Broadway director. I told you a couple weeks ago that Kenny had gotten spectacular reviews for one show on Broadway, Top Dog Underdog. Well, another Kenny Leon show opened on Broadway last night, Ohio State Murders, and the review of that play even better than what he got a couple weeks ago. We're very proud of you, uh, Kenny Leon. That's it. We're out of time. Back on Monday. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. <laughs>